You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank you again for this invitation to preach at this really remarkable series of uh, services and fellowship around table afterwards. Uh, I have traveled to many cities and been to many churches in the country, actually all across the world. I've never seen anything like this anywhere else. So it's really a remarkable thing that's going on in Birmingham every Lent. Yesterday I stated, but admittedly didn't prove, in the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that American Christianity has forgotten God. I, this is part, these two talks are a part of uh, a book I'm writing on this topic. And it's uh, because you can say, uh, you have room in a book to add things later that you don't in a sermon. I'll just summarize by saying, as much as I am critical of myself and American Christianity in general at having forgotten God, it's always good to note that God has not forgotten us. The very fact that he's given us scripture, that he's given us leaders in clergy and others to remind us of God's word, uh, magnificent buildings like this, and sadly, like Notre Dame Cathedral, to remember who he is and what he's done for us. But our focus for Lent, and for this week especially, is on this, on this interior life of ours that seems to have gone awry, and how we would speak into that by his grace. More to the point, uh, I'm not really interested in analyzing the sin, although that's, that can be pretty interesting in and of itself. I am trying to look at what it looks like for those who do, in fact, remember God. And as I said yesterday, it looks like a desire, a crazy, over-the-top, yearning to know and love God. And so my th- feeling is if we can get a picture of that, then all the critique of our current state of things becomes really secondary. And I began yesterday by looking at how Scripture uses the metaphor of hunger and thirst to talk about this desire. Today, we're going to look at the metaphor of romantic love, another way the Bible talks about a passion we can have for Christ. Now, in our age, we've recovered uh, an original meaning of the Song of Solomon, the book, The Song of Solomon, as a celebration of romantic love between a man and a woman. But for centuries, the church has also, I think, rightly understood romantic love as a symbol of the love between God and his people. For example, the great medieval spiritual writer Bernard of Clairvaux published 86 sermons on this Song of Solomon in which he likened the love between a man and a woman to that between God and us. Now, Bernard came by this interpretation honestly, biblically, and perhaps the most well-known use of the metaphor is found in Paul's discussion of marital love. As the scriptures say, he says in Ephesians, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration, he says, of the way Christ and the church are one. And he uses the metaphor elsewhere. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself, he tells the Corinthians. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. And Paul came by this metaphor honestly as well, drawing on many Old Testament passages that pictured Israel as the bridegroom and God as the bride. Perhaps the most famous extended use of this metaphor is in the book of Hosea. In chapter 2 we read, I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, 
unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. That's where Scripture becomes a little R-rated, if not worse, in the sense that that phrase, know me, is an allu- I think is a direct allusion to, the, to the, the way the word know is used in the relationship between Adam and Eve, in which afterwards she conceives. So we're talking about a very intimate picture of our relationship with God. This is carried through all through the scripture, clear to the end of the Bible, and in the vision of the culmination of things, the book of Revelation says this, Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give him honor, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. So it's no wonder then that Bernard, among other church writers, wax eloquent on just this theme as he opens his sermon series on the Song of Solomon. In in Sermon 3, he exposits the meaning of a verse from the Song of Solomon, Let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. Bernard says, Anyone who has received this mystical kiss from Christ from the mouth of Christ at least once seeks it again he seeks again that intimate experience and eagerly looks for its frequent renewal I think that nobody can grasp what it is except the one who receives it for it is a hidden manna and only he who eats it still hungers for more notice how he now mixes back in the nourishment metaphor for yearning for God in short the desire for God is not unlike falling in love, in which the love-struck desire nothing else but to be with one another. It's like the physical passion young lovers feel for one another. It's like the ecstasy of sexual union that momentarily satisfies ever so deeply, but before long grows into a desire to know the ecstasy again. Bernard is one of many what I call proto-evangelicals in his emphasis on the personal, intimate, and passionate relationship we can have with God. As he put it in his treatise uh, on loving God, He is all that I need, all that I long for. My God and my help, I will love thee for thy great goodness, not so much as I might, but surely as much as I can. I cannot love thee as thou deservest to be loved, for I cannot love thee more than my own feebleness permits. I will love thee more when thou deemest me worthy to receive greater capacity for loving, yet never so perfectly as thou hast deserved of me. And again, you note the note of grace in here. This is when I'm, when I'm encouraging us to think about and pray for and ask God for a greater desire of love. It's not a matter of working up some sort of artificial emotion. Bernard notes, I will love thee when thou deemest me worthy to receive a greater capacity for loving. It's all a matter of grace. Now, to encounter the living God is to meet two realities at one and the same time. And here's where the whole business of desire for God, I think, gets very interesting. The first reality was expressed no more eloquently than by the philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal when he haltingly described, seemingly while it was happening, his stunning vision of God. Here are his words. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, 
from about half past ten at night until about half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. Now, not every saint experiences God in this intense way and in, in with an overwhelming vision. But I dare say all of us or nearly all of us have had those brief, often quiet, often quite subtle encounters. But no matter how small and quiet, we just cannot forget them and we cannot shake them off. And we can't shake him off because of the second reality that accompanies an encounter with the living God, and that's its insatiableness. C.S. Lewis talked about that in regard to his own conversion. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? An unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, he says, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. The cardinal mistake of some Christians is telling people that knowing God will bring you peace. Now, yes, in the sense of knowing forgiveness and purpose in life. But in a deeper sense, an encounter with God brings not only satisfaction, but also deep dissatisfaction. Not just fulfillment, but also longing. And a longing that can never be finally fulfilled. Julian of Norwich, a medieval mystic, said, if he graciously lets us see something of himself, then we are moved by the same grace to seek with a great longing to see him more fully. Elsewhere in her book, earlier uh, Revelations of Divine Love, she calls it an unbearable desire. But this is the summary I really like best. She puts it succinctly, I saw him and I sought him. I had him and I wanted him. We normally think the cause and effect is just the opposite. I sought him, and then I saw him. I wanted him, and then I had him. But she does just the opposite. I saw him, and then I sought him. I had him, and I wanted him. We all are longing for the infinite, for that which all other desires only point. And when our desires for God uh, are fulfilled, however briefly, we recognize at the same time how much more there is in God's beauty and wonder and love. That's the experience of grace. We can never exhaust its wonder and glory. And for that reason, according to Lewis, and I think he's right, it is the most precious of longings. Now, a person like me is tempted to say that this sort of longing is given only to the highly spiritual people among us. 
Yes, they have a unique desire for God as such, but most of us desire concrete realities. We have special passions for maybe food or drink or romance or love or fine music or fine art or the splendor of creation and so forth. To each his own, we think. But this spiritual passion isn't for everybody. And yet, Jesus says it is in that he commands that we all pursue the love of God and pursue it to the fullest extent. This, like all commands, this greatest command, like all commands, in the end is not really a should as much as it is a promise. Do this. Pursue God with every fiber of your being. Do this and you shall live, really live. In our restlessness, we flit from one thing to another as we follow our various lesser desires, hoping against hope to find something, anything that will cure the boredom and satisfy our longings. Everything we pursue, financial security, love, fulfillment in a calling, the joy of a hobby or pastime and so forth, well, they're just mere pointers to something more true, more good, and more beautiful. We remain restless precisely because we mistake these shadows for the real thing. At our worst, we make idols out of the penultimate things we desire. At our most innocent, we are like confused travelers who, when having reached a milestone, think we've arrived at our glorious destination. In either case, there is something better that awaits us. The great Augustine, in reflecting on his youth, said, I sought pleasure, nobility, and truth, not in God, but in the things he had created. Thus I fell into sorrow and confusion. Uh, let me repeat that. Then I fell in, thus I fell into sorrow and confusion. Thanks be to thee, my joy and my glory and my hope and my God. Thanks be to thee for thy gifts. In commenting on this, Augustine scholar Michael Foley noted that this passage outlines Augustine's theology of desire. The appetite for physical pleasure, he says, is ultimately a groaning for happiness in God. And thus the attempt to satisfy it with created goods instead of the Creator ends in sorrow rather than joy. In one sense, there is no one on the planet who is not into God, so to speak. The only thing at issue is whether we are aware of what our desires are for and where they are desired to lead us or not. As Augustine famously and succinctly put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. To desire God, this is the sum and substance of life. It's not just one injunction of many. It is the greatest commandment. It's not merely a duty to fulfill, but the fulfillment of life itself. To love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. There is no greater blessing than to give oneself to this pursuit and to enjoy the everlasting fruit and longing that it produces in us. This is what the Westminster Catechism is driving at when it says the chief purpose of men and women is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So the psalmist that we looked at yesterday is in biblical writers yesterday and today. Well, they are not neurotics or emotional wrecks, but the sanest of all human creatures. If it is a mental illness, well, then let us all share in it. The church is not only a hospital for sinners, 
but also an asylum for those disturbed saints who are monomaniacs for God, who want nothing but to seek after Him, knowing full well that the pursuit will never end, and yet knowing too that there is nothing better to do with one's life. I saw Him, and I sought Him. I had Him, and I wanted Him. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.